All right, welcome to the first political R&D podcast hosted by Robbie and Deirdre. Hi, Robbie. Hi, Deirdre. <laughs> so our podcast is going to cover politics in Alberta and Canada. We're going to occasionally have guests and do some research on politics, strategy, current events, and also share some opinions from people who have a little bit bit of background in politics and who decided to get out. So when did you originally get into politics, Deirdre? Um, I didn't dive in until 2015. It was, I was actually working at the Ministry of Seniors and I had just started that January. As we recall, we were going into a an early election call. And what happens when you're working within the ministries is you get an email every morning if your minister, your ministry, or the premier is in the news. So as you can imagine, coming up to the election, it was kind of packed. And I actually wanted nothing to do with it at first. I was like, this is just going to make me mad. I don't want to read it. And then I started reading it. And I did get mad. And... (laughs) That is really where it snowballed from. But just to just to be fair, my mom has always been, uh, I think, fairly politically engaged. So I have this background knowledge of, you know, as long as I can remember of, of her telling me about what was going on. So there are things that I technically wasn't interested in, but there they were. So that's that's my background on it. And what about you? Well, I guess my original involvement in politics was at the ripe old age of eight <laughs> when our grade five class did a, a mock parliament during the election. Mm-hmm. And so we formed parties and had to campaign and set up a platform and structure and had an election and I kind of had the bug ever since then. Uh, (laughs) Formally getting involved in politics during the 2015 election I offered to volunteer for the Alberta party and they weren't overly organized or responsive to people that were willing to roll up their sleeves and uh, (laughs) so after the election I said um, you know I really like this party I like its ideas and I hounded their organizers until they finally met with me for a coffee and things kind of snowballed from there and I helped to organize the Alberta party's pride entry in 2016 and apparently did a decent job and the regional organizer at the time asked me if I would consider joining the provincial board and so I put my name forward and I was elected I took over the role as the Edmonton regional organizer, did that for a period of time until our communications chair in the party had to step away. So I gradually took over doing social media management and then took on full-time communications for the party and eventually became the communications vice president. And then I left for a period of time the board near the end of my term before I went to work for Stephen Mandel and the party as uh, media relations. And I left that position uh, coming up on just about a month ago now and have 
just been doing some freelance consulting and political commentary in the media and online since then. So nice. Yeah. I forgot to mention that I actually did get involved at the Alberta Party too, but I will say that my initial experience was exactly like yours. I sent an email saying, can I volunteer for Greg? And I didn't hear back and I didn't hear back and I didn't hear back. And I was like, okay, I don't know how political parties work. Maybe they don't need anyone. <laughs> and <laughs> then I got, uh, then I did finally get an answer and they said, you know, you have a, there's a candidate out in, in Strathmore. So why don't we put you in touch with them? And, uh, yeah, he, he wasn't sure whether or not he could trust me. So he just didn't use any help. And so it actually kind of fizzled for a bit and it wasn't until 2017 that I started actually getting super involved with some of the party things and that coincided with me actually following politics by driving around and going places that was when I made the biggest connection to the party totally so. <clears throat> yeah that, and that's how I recall meeting you actually was you drove <laughs> Uh, insane amount of distance to an Alberta party event. <laughs> Often. <laughs> True. Mm -hmm. So where do you see yourself politically? Oh, it's, you know, it's really tough, actually. That was, that was something that even, like, when I got really involved in the Alberta party and someone said to me as well, you should put your name forward for a board position. And I did, and I was successful, and then I became VP membership, and I was on the executive. It was way too much stuff. Um, but what I found as soon as I got into those positions is that I don't, I don't know that I'm a super partisan person. Um, so I don't, I don't really wear a label, and you know that's a little bit of my own identity crisis there because. I know I'm more conservative than some. I know I'm not nearly as conservative as some. And so I have a very difficult time, you know, with with where I sit politically, which is actually, you know, probably why I still gravitate towards the Alberta party because I feel comfortable there because I can have some ideas that or or some opinions that are a little further left and I can have some that are a little further right and I'm kind of at home um and and what about you like that label thing we've kind of talked about that <laughs> yeah um it's interesting because obviously i saw something in the alberta party provincially that appealed to me and what they espoused themselves to be which was kind of a, a post-partisan or non-partisan party that's focused on good ideas regardless of where they come from mm -hmm. uh federally speaking i've voted for every party uh every mainstream party i should clarify <laughs> <laughs> and uh i have held a membership in the uh conservative party of canada um but uh, i have voted liberal i have voted cpc and i have voted ndp um and i don't really have any loyalty to any of them um for the first time, probably in the next federal election, I am really struggling with who I'm going to vote for. I tend to be more of an issues and uh, a voter who makes the decision at the ballot box based upon what I think the country needs most and what 
some of the biggest issues are that we're facing at the time. And I don't feel a great deal of loyalty or inspiration by any of the mainstream parties at this point, nor their leadership. So, yeah, I'm 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 the same federally. Um, And I mean, I think it's I think it's also actually indicative of how I am provincially because I don't I don't like what happened federally with the with the uh, PC and reform merger. So that that never sat well with me provincially when it when this happened here. So see, again, I wasn't really paying attention, but I was sort of paying attention. I know that it happened. I kind of remember things going on at the time. But yeah, I, I same thing. I'm I'm not I'm not beholden to any of the parties. I think I have a current membership in all of them. But you know, I do that. Well, you're known to attend uh, a wide variety of partisan events, I think. I do, <laughs> yeah. Fair to say. Yeah. <laughs> so for yourself, when uh, what is the perspective you use when you're looking at policies? That's kind of a tough one, but I guess I would say that, you know, I come from a background within the service industry. So I mentioned I worked at the Ministry of Seniors. Um, I've also, you know, uh, my entire career has been in customer services. So, you know, I worked, I worked for hotels. I worked, um, you know, in sales departments. I did uh, uh, front desk work. I, my most recent one was uh, the career coaching. So I, I do, I have a lot of one-on-one with people. So I tend to, I tend to use a very individualized perspective, which Uh, actually goes against my education because my education was sociology which is more of a generalized Um, but I I tend to I tend to look at things and think if it's if it's really good for um, you know for for a family like mine then it should be good for you know all families kind of thing so it's it's really a very um, it's a person-centered centered perspective I guess what about yours uh, I think it really depends upon what the circumstances the are that the pol- well <laughs> the circumstances that the policy or the problem uh, that the policy is trying to address, right? And mm-hmm. and I think that that's part of what initially drew me to the Alberta Party was that there's going to be problems where the solution might be a policy that you might label a left wing policy when it comes to say social issues or addressing poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's definitely other issues that I think a classic right-wing policy would be better at addressing um, things around economic development, jobs, etc. And so I think one of the problems that, that we as a society have is that we get a little locked into that partisanship and that ideology and we let good ideas escape from the discussion or discourse just because they don't traditionally align with what our ideology or our party might do. Mm. And I, I think that that hurts the public discourse. I think that it's detrimental to society as a whole to to not have an open mind and take a look at issues from 
a number of different perspectives to try and find the best answer instead of the right or left answer. Mm -hmm. And that works. It just makes all of our thinking more complex. But yep, I'm there. (laughs) Yeah. And I would say it's probably one of the things that makes it so hard for the Alberta party and its supporters to define itself. It's a challenge that smarter minds than me haven't been able to figure (laughs) out. So, um, but uh, the person who does it, I think, stands a really good chance of establishing a political dynasty or a political movement that is expansive and significant. Oh, absolutely. I agree. And so since we are talking about that, this actually came up in one of the Facebook groups that I'm in. And they were asking, how, how does this how, do, how does it move from being about self-interest to being about, I understand that if we are all given these opportunities, um, that we all do better. So how, because, and especially because we're very divisive right now, politically. Well, socialism, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah. So that was the question that they posed was how, you know, how do you, how do you reach someone's self-interest by also, you know, getting people to understand that it's not just about you? Yeah, I, I think that that's a challenge, especially with society now. We are so focused on what's in it for me. And with social media, it I think it's fed the division that we're seeing in the polarization. Mm-hmm. And it really, you wind up in an echo chamber if you're not conscientious about building a sphere of people that expose you to different ideologies and different viewpoints and different perspectives. And you might not even conscientiously do that, but just over time by reacting and interacting with people who affirm or support your viewpoint, you cultivate a community that prevents you seeing and exposing yourself to other ideas and how they impact other people, right? Mm. Um, I think a a good example is the conditions that kind of led to Donald Trump Mm -hmm. gaining a following and a base in the U.S. Uh, I think history is going to look back on President Obama as having done a lot of good things, but one of the criticisms I hear a lot is that as coal became less prevalent and less important to the economy, there wasn't any sort of support or focus for families and people that were impacted by the decline of that industry. And so when Donald Trump popped up with this populist rhetoric that really spoke to the pain that they were feeling, they rallied around that. Um, And it's no different than people that were kind of in the Rust Belt and people that just felt like they'd been left behind by the quote-unquote progressive agenda of the Obama government. And I think that that's a little bit what's at play with the rise of Jason Kenney in Alberta, to be honest. I will agree, and I'm going to I'm going to devil's advocate this just a tad, because, again, something else I was just talking about recently, Ben Shapiro had Stephen Harper on... Uh, whatever his podcast was that he did. Um, Anyways, and I watched it. And Shapiro is 
more libertarian. And I also hold quite a few libertarian leaning views, actually. But one of the things that he had asked, and this actually might not be relevant, but he had said to he had said to Stephen Harper, at what point do you say this is not a government like you shouldn't be waiting on the government to help you through this. You shouldn't be looking to the government for this. Um, you know, you have to take responsibility for yourself. <clears throat> and Harper's response was actually, which really didn't surprise me, but it did kind of surprise me from where the conversation had been, which was, which was, um, he said, I don't think you can tell the voters that they're wrong, which really bothered me because sometimes they are. And I understand that it's best to get votes that way. But the thing is, there was a there was another video that I watched, and I don't remember who did this, but what they said was, you know, were people afraid, uh, what would all the farmers do? What would all the, as, as automation came, what were all these factory workers going to do? Well, what they did was they retrained and they went to work in these new developing industries. And so I'm kind of I'm kind of libertarian leading in that as well, where I'm saying where I'm looking at it, saying, you know, if, if this industry is going down or changing in such a way, then you need to prepare yourself for that. Yeah. And um, I think most free market conservatives would tend to agree with that in principle. Yeah. But. It's the difference between theory and execution, right? And, it is. you know, we saw a lot of that in Alberta when the oil crash happened starting kind of late 2014, early 2015. And we started to see the economy turn and employment drop and people that had enjoyed very generous six figure salaries in the oil patch that used to be quite dismissive of people from the Atlantic provinces that were living on EI and quote unquote, mm. not working hard enough or not pulling themselves up by their bootstraps were quite ready to take advantage of extended EI benefits and, and uh, retraining opportunities in some cases. Mm -hmm. And I think as well that, I mean, there's the other side of that too, where the NDP had, given, uh, I believe it was in the Hanna area, the one coal plant that they were, or I think it was a coal plant that they were shutting down. And what they did was they gave everyone uh, tuition vouchers so that they could retrain. And I will say I'm not 100% on my source. Um, it was Drew Barnes. And he tweeted out that only nine out of over 200 of these vouchers had been used. So you've got the, you know, you have this other side of it, which says, okay, and if the government does provide it, now granted, a tuition voucher unused is no money out of the government's pocket, but yet the offer was there. The offer was there. Do you want free education? Like nine people, that is, that's, that's less than 5% of, of 200 that were going to be unemployed. And that number just scared me like like personal responsibility all of those things was like you're being offered an opportunity that not everyone gets not everyone gets a tuition voucher to say hey go retrain most most people have to do it on their own do you think that an element of that might be 
particularly in the Hannah case, that going for retraining may mean having to pick up your roots and relocate? Well, it absolutely could, because again, we're talking about, we're talking about Hannah. It's not a huge, it's not a huge city with a lot of opportunities. So your choices are a little more limited. Plus the fact that by the time that this happens, I mean, you may have put 20 years in and maybe you started without finishing high school. Maybe you started, you know, with, maybe you did finish high school, but your grades weren't that great. And now you're facing this, you need all of this information and the requirements, you know, some people, some people would say, uh, they would tell people if your grades aren't that great, you can always go into the trades. Mm, yes and no. You still need to have this level of, of English comprehension or, and reading comprehension, sorry, and English language skills. And you need to have a, level, a certain level of math that you know, is, is required for the trades. So it's not that people, people, not everyone is ready as soon as they lose their job to just jump into a retrain. Sometimes they have to go back, right? Yeah, totally. Um, my dad was a coal mine welder in Grand Cache and mm-hmm. obviously has been fairly affected by not just government policy decisions, um, but also market conditions. And uh, so he actually wound up relocating to BC because there was no real prospect of employment for a welder in the market really in Alberta at that time um, and even the work he was finding he wasn't able to get paid for because companies were having liquidity issues and so mm. he's now in Sparwood BC working at a coal mine as a welder um, but they actually deal with metallurgical coal instead of thermal coal okay. so like the coal that would be used to uh, produce steel okay so yeah, it's and I mean it affects you know it affects different people differently and yeah but yeah. but so so yeah there's that balance of personal responsibility but there's also a realization that every person's situation is different. Two hundred totally. people are offered you know but why is it only why is it only under five for four and a half percent why why is it only that many? That's where you need to start taking that personal view and finding out what what more is there. I yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting conundrum for political leaders, though, because if you find yourself with a large segment of the population that finds itself unable to provide for its basic needs, then that's a really motivating factor and political motivation to support somebody, even if they are selling you a bill of goods that they can, you know, bring coal back or uh, bring us back to you know, the boom times in the early 2000s, right? Yes, all the yeah. jobs, all the jobs are coming All the back. jobs, absolutely. <laughs> so there's been uh, quite a bit of interesting news talking about uh, the conservative movement and uh, <laughs> quite a few rumors popping up online in the past 24 to 48 hours uh, about Mr. Brian Jean. What are you hearing? <laughs> what am I hearing? So we went from we went from Dave Cornoy's uh, Dave Berta article that started with uh, Brian Jean going to the Alberta party question mark, and <laughs> and that one came up yesterday, right? 
I think. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Dave Cornwaye, uh, blogger for Dave Berta, did post a tweet yesterday um, and a blog post speculating that Brian Jean may be running in Fort McMurray for the Alberta party. Um, which would be really interesting considering he just recently stepped down and one of his former staffers, Layla Goodridge, would be running against him if that were to be true. Yeah. Yeah. I don't um, I don't think there's a lot behind that one. Just see, just because one of the things is I don't think I don't think that he would run against Layla Goodridge. I don't think he would put her in that position. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. Um, whether there's any credibility to them, when I was still with the Alberta Party in a paid employee role, I did have some people who had supported Brian Jean's leadership campaign that were trying to push me to try and have a beer with him. And <laughs> and I think that they were hopeful that he would come to the Alberta Party. Um, okay whether there was any sort of actual connection or desire on Gene's part, I don't know that. And I can't mm -hmm. say with any sort of credibility. Uh, one, of, one of the theories that I heard and that I thought was kind of interesting was maybe, maybe there's being some trial balloons floated to see what kind of resonates with voters. And I found that interesting because I had heard rumors about there being some polling done, um, some IVR polling done that was asking questions along the lines of, would you vote for the Alberta party with Brian Jean as the leader? Oh. So uh, there's, I'm kind of a believer where there's smoke, there's fire. And mm -hmm. if it's not Brian himself, certainly some people that are, tangentially connected at least um have a desire or a hope that he's going to re-enter politics mm -hmm. and whether that's with the alberta party or the rumor that popped up in the calgary sun today <laughs> bright <laughs> that, and early this morning <laughs> yeah bright and early um so that rumor was that derek fildebrand was going to step aside and unbury the hatchet <laughs> and let Mr. Gene run his party. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that was, that was a little bit of a shock. I mean, I've heard, I've heard the rumors too, right? That, that he was coming back. Uh, I heard that he was coming back with a new party. Uh, everyone of course always said too, that it'd be easier for him to come back to an existing party. So my, I was, I've actually had my eye on the Alberta Advantage party. Because Marilyn Burns, the leader, still hasn't registered to run, which I find really suspicious because I would assume that she knew she was going to run. Oh, I don't know, back when the majority of her candidates came on board. So um, that was really where I was looking. And now, granted, I mean, the thing is, it's it's all rumor right now. The things that are being, the things that are coming out. Well, he can't be joining all of the parties, <laughs> right? So didn't you say you held memberships in all of them? <laughs> yes, but I'm not actually running for them. <laughs> well, but he's not running for anything yet either. He's not either, and and it's it's very possible that it's very possible. I agree that it's a trial balloon. You throw something out, you throw something out into 
the the media into the public sphere and you find out um, what you know what the reaction is are, do you think people... Brian do you think Brian's just uh, relishing in fulfilling the role of the biggest troll in Alberta politics <laughs> right <laughs> and I mean and people keep bringing this up too but it was it really was a fantastic thing when he tweeted out that he had that announcement and I was one of them going, you know, it's 3.15, Brian. Like I thought three o'clock you were supposed to be on and it was just all over the place. People were on the edge of their seats for this announcement and, you know, great that you're having a baby, but (laughs) you know, that is not why we tuned in. And I think the last time that I checked that video, it had been viewed almost like 40,000 times. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so it, it drew a lot of attention. And and in a way, I kind of I kind of think that that, you know, that he probably had a little bit of fun with that. But he also probably got a little bit of a boost saying people are interested. People are there. There is a desire for him to come back. And it's and it's a very real, I think it's a very real uh, feeling on the ground. Yeah, you know, people uh, were upset. So it was really interesting to see the Right Honorable Stephen Harper, twenty-second Prime Minister of Canada, weigh in after Rick Bell's column came out today, and he put out a statement that says, "Conservatives win when we are united." That was true when we united our federal party, and it is true in Alberta today. Personal ambition and fighting old battles must take a backseat to the best interests of our province. Jason Kenney received an overwhelming mandate from Alberta's Conservatives to lead us into the next election. Everything that has occurred since has shown that party members made the right choice. Laureen and I will be strongly supporting Jason, and we are confident that all true Alberta Conservatives will help him defeat this NDP government. Signed Stephen Harper. So some interesting <laughs> pieces in there. Conservatives. True conservatives. To be fair, I added that bit of emphasis. It was not bolded in his statement. <laughs> it didn't have to be. That was that was the dog whistle. Yep, absolutely. So uh so a couple of things in there. Uh you know, obviously Mr. Kenny's been in the news a lot lately with allegations of voter fraud. And so receiving an overwhelming mandate from Alberta's conservatives, that seems to be a little bit in the air right now. <laughs> yeah. And it should. But at I well, I don't know. I don't think it's really out there as much as it should be. So I mean, people have heard about the kamikaze campaign, they've heard about the potential voter fraud. But um some of the comments that I've seen are from people who are saying, well, the sources aren't that reliable. You know, it's coming from Prab Gill. It's coming from Happy Man. These are two people who are no longer, you know, who weren't accepted to stay in the party and things like that. I actually, I actually had a conversation yesterday with a retired criminal lawyer. And the reason that I really wanted to have this conversation is because I didn't quite understand how big of a deal this really is. And it's a very big deal. It's, it's, it's a, it's a criminal offense. It's, uh, it's punishable by up to 10 years in, in prison. It's, this is a very legal matter. And there's a, there's a problem with 
the fact that it's even been brought up in the first place, that the accusation is there. And so when you when you put all of that into perspective with Brian Jean, you know, there's a problem. So <laughs> do you think the fact that the complaints are happening as people are leaving or kicked out of the party reduces the credibility of them? Uh, yeah, I don't think you can get away with it or or I don't think that you can get away without it. Um, there's been very few people who have stepped aside and said, this is ridiculous. And and the thing is that even the groups, so I had sat down with a group of, of UCP members who were very upset about what was going on in nomination races. This was before they actually, you know, just plopped somebody in. But, um, you know, with the disqualifications and things, this is top-down management. The members aren't being allowed to decide. And there were people already walking away. Um, very few people, while they stay, are going to be vocal, right? They're, they're going to stop, they're going to stop uh, being a member, being a board, uh, sitting board member. They're going, to, they're going to resign those positions and then they're going to speak up. Now, in some of the situations where they've had uh, like uh, the the failed nomination candidate. In some of those cases, the nomination candidate only failed because of party interference. So, um, you know, I haven't had a chance to have this conversation with Rick Strankman, but but I have met uh, I've met other people who, you know, were either involved in Rick's campaign or know somebody. And in Drumheller Stetler, the theory is that the reason Todd Posse was disqualified is because Todd and uh, Nathan Horner, Nate Horner, would have split the vote and Rick Strankman would have won. So they DQ'd Todd Posse. So, mm -hmm. so the thing, the thing too, um, you know, I've, I've heard that complaint as well about uh, Aaron Deep Sandu. People saying, well, he was okay with it happening to other people. Now, the one thing that I have to say is from an individual perspective is that maybe all the other disqualifications, maybe all of the other things that went on, maybe they were for a good reason. I know that since it happened to me, it wasn't for a good reason, right? So sometimes it, it takes that, it takes it happening to you to realize, oh, you know what, maybe there were problems with all of these other things too. So I, I can't say 100% that, uh, that, you know, that, that people were okay with it. But from a different perspective, it might have been, why wasn't anything, you know, maybe there was something wrong with those candidates. Maybe they had every reason to disqualify them. And until it happens to you and you say, wait, no, that's wrong. Do you think it's been a strategic mistake to oversell the grassroots guarantee and how open and driven by membership the party was going to be no because all <laughs> here's the here's i'm gonna go with my huh, my tactical woman if i go back to political tactics the reason that grassroots guarantee existed the reason that they pushed transparency and accountability had nothing to do with wanting to run the party that way that was 100 percent to bring in the wild rose they they needed the wild rose on board and remember they had to hit a 75 percent uh, uh agreement in order to change the constitution 
that's why it existed. That's why it was brought in. Um, you know, the language that Jason Kenney was using from the time that he became PC leader to the time he became UCP leader was the language of the Wild Rose. Yeah, I, I would argue that that is accurate and fair. <laughs> I've always said, though, that I think in an alternate universe where Jim Prentice hadn't returned to Alberta, that Jason Kenney probably might have wound up being the Wild Rose leader. And Brian Jean probably should have been the leader of the Progressive Conservative Party. <laughs> well, you know, um, one of the things that Vitor Marciano brought up in a recent podcast I did on This Week in AB was that he said... Uh, he said that Jason Kenney's never been a donor. He's never been a member. He wasn't involved in the Wild Rose either. Did, do his ideologies sit better within that, that's, that faction of Wild Rose that really went as far right as you wanted to go? Absolutely. He, he absolutely fit better there than he did in the PC party. But the PC party had the one thing that Kenny needed, which was all the backroom operatives and all of the political connections. That's what came with the PC party. Interesting. So <laughs> if all those people are in the UCP now. But I... they're not. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, well, uh, well, yes, I guess they are and they aren't because what happened to, what happened to unity? Well, and, and that's like brings the me back other to the place. Question. Well, <laughs> that brings me back to the original question is, was it a strategic mistake to oversell that grassroots guarantee? Because in the short term, it definitely helped to spur unity and ensure that those referenda came out with the results that Kenny and company were looking for. Mm -hmm. But in the long term, is that going to allow the unity movement to be sustainable? And can a conservative movement stay united when you do have progressive factions and you do have libertarian elements? And are they able to overlook those differences long enough to sustainably stay together? Well, how long has it lasted now for the federal party? 2003? Yeah, thereabouts. Yeah, so, I mean, they're sitting at... 15, 16 years, although they just split uh, in 2017. So, yeah. So, and I mean, the, the People's Party of Canada is actually getting some attention. Um, mm -hmm. And obviously, Maxim Bernier was quite close to capturing the leadership of the, the CPC. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I mean, I'm looking at exactly what's happening federally is what's happening provincially. It just remains to be seen whether or not it's going to damage them, right? Yep. Yeah. No, so. it'll definitely be interesting to see long term if it's gonna the cohesion is gonna be there or if you are going to see Brian Wade back into politics and plant his flag somewhere. Mm-hmm. And the rumor I don't think we finished we finished the rumor that Rick Bell put out this morning, which was that he was going to join the FCP. Yep. That Brian Jean was going to end up and wow I'm sorry but that was one that I was kind of like I don't see that happening Derek and Brian Jean didn't have they didn't seem to have a really great uh, connection <laughs> especially at the end especially at the end like it yeah, yeah. it now 
granted, you know, some some individuals within that duo uh, may have been riding a little high on their expectations and what they thought was going to come, you know, what the future held. And they may have hopped off of their high horse and decided, you know, to look at maybe mending some fences. Or knocked off their high horse by uh, <laughs> a pickup truck in low light that was yeah, no doing a terrible job of parking. <laughs> Killed his ambitions uh, like a deer out of season. You know, there's so many, so many options. Um, <laughs> but one of the other things that has been that has been oddly uh, projected, and I say oddly because I'm thinking of W. Brett Wilson and his ridiculous tweets that keep saying the election is coming, the election's going to be tomorrow, the drop, the rift's going to be dropped tomorrow. I'm so I can't imagine an NDP insider who might know this picking up the phone and calling Brett Wilson about it. So uh, why are people listening to him? But anyways. <laughs> well, as you and I both know, any idiot with a social media soapbox can gain a following. <laughs> yeah. One with the CBC television show even more. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, so I guess that brings us to, we are expecting an election relatively soon. <laughs> Sometime. Sometime. Um, there is conflicting legislation, though. The fixed election date legislation that was passed by the previous progressive conservative government We know that under that legislation, an election has to be held before May 31st. But we also know that the last progressive conservative premier, Mr. Prentice, chose not to follow that legislation because it was politically expedient for him or so he thought. It was expedient. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right out the door. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so... One of the things that I had raised or talked about was the potential on my blog about the NDP repealing that legislation in their spring sitting this spring and extending to 2020. Do you think that that's something that they might do? I I don't know because I've actually heard um, Stephen Carter made a comment because he had... Uh, he participated in some of that legislation and uh, he regrets it by the way, but he did say that, that technically they have until May, 2020 it's um, but I, I don't really know how that works. I haven't read the legislation, which is weird because sometimes I read legislation. Um, But I, I don't think they'll hold it off that long. But it really depends on what's going on in Alberta. Because, again, back to that whole kamikaze candidate election fraud thing. It, Like I said, it's a bigger deal than what I think people were actually thinking. And if there's jail time involved, even, even summary conviction, which means that they could get anything else. But, you know, it's it's something that has piqued the voters' interests. So I don't know. Originally, I was hearing uh, people keep people kept saying March 18th. Yeah. Yeah, Reliable people. When the speech from the throne is scheduled to be delivered. Right. Yeah. Yeah, So March 18th, March 19th, uh, like right in that area there. It made sense. uh, But 
again, I don't, I don't see, I don't see the Indies having, you know, any real push to call the election before May 1st at, at this point. I mean, it maybe should go later, depending again on what Elections Alberta is doing. I would argue that when you have, if you're to believe polling, the premier in waiting, potentially under investigation for voter fraud and for breaking elections rules and laws, that it doesn't make sense to have an election until those investigations are completed. And obviously the election commissioner and the RCMP have been reticent to firmly commit to timelines or if there is investigations happening, but we've seen some fines levied already by the elections commissioner connected to the Jeff Calloway campaign. So we Mm -hmm. do know there is some investigations happening. Is there any advantage to the NDP actually calling the election now or early when you look at where their polling numbers are and the state of the economy and the fact that it is faltering? Yeah, no, that's, that was one of the reasons back in October, that was the first time that I voiced it, saying that I think that they should push the election back. And I mean, it was it was in response to uh, the nomination candidate issues. Like it just seemed like every week you could count on something really, really stupid coming from the party. So... I kind of looked at that and said, you know what, why not? You know, there's no there's no benefit to the NDP calling the election in February or March, whatever. Just because of the fact that the economy is still faltering. My big thing was Trans Mountain, right? Mm-hmm. We still didn't know what's happening with that. Now we know that we have NEB approval, uh, which no one got excited about, um, which was really confusing to me because we had a lot going on. Right. We had rallies. um, There were emergency sessions. uh, People couldn't talk about anything else. And then the NEB says we've we've done it again. uh, We've completed our consultations again. Here's the situation. We still recommend that it be approved. And if you look, if you Google NEB approves Trans Mountain Pipeline, the first thing that comes up is the NEB site. The second thing that comes up is 2016. You have to go down to get the most recent ones, which were in February. And that's it, right? The best thing to happen to Alberta's economy, the pipeline getting approved again, and nobody is saying a word. But, and that's, and that's, that's nobody, right? All parties. Nobody is really talking about this. My Do you think that maybe people are a little gun shy, though, after Rachel Notley's declaration that the job was completed and she was batting a thousand percent in court? <laughs> OK, yeah. So and she even said, too, that she expects there to be appeals. So she's not excited. Yeah. Um, you know, Kenny. Well, Kenny's not excited because he doesn't want the pipeline to be approved before he can take credit for it. Totally. So. Yeah. But um, but I don't know, like, do you can you see an advantage to them calling the election right now? Well, to be frank, if I was advising the NDP or the the premier, 
if you look at the polling and if you look at kind of social sentiment right now, it appears that they're headed for a devastating loss. Right. And so do you pull the trigger now when you do have some legislative tools that might buy you a little bit of time to allow the economy to do better for jobs to recover a little bit more and potentially for the government, the federal government, that is to give final approval and construction to start on a pipeline. And then the other political consideration is you do have investigations happening by the elections commissioner into the kamikaze campaign. You potentially have a criminal investigation into voter fraud. And if those things proceed far enough and get into a courtroom or there's convictions and fines that are levied. Is that enough to sway the public's opinion that you're not the right person or maybe for. Oh my God, what a sad, sad thought. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, you do have somebody in the white house right now that bragged about grabbing women by their, uh, yeah. Lady Arts and uh, said he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and wouldn't lose the supporter and he's he's there now. <laughs> oh, so it is it's a it's a very different political world right now. Um, and I think social media again has kind of created an environment where we're always on outrage and things that we would legitimately get outraged in the past about that would change voter intention aren't penetrating the same way that they used to you can't go through a year like we just did with the ucp with with like i said every week every nomination contest like how many of them went through smoothly without any complaints of party interference or this candidate said misogynistic things or you know race hating or like it was just it was so constant and during that time it actually occurred to me as well that very possibly it was it was it was purposeful because what took away the wild rose it was you know a blog post that came up three days before the election where you know and and daniel smith as leader saying it's okay for him to have those opinions because a lot of people were like no no it's not um the the whole lake of fire thing seemed to spur enough voters that the Wild Rose didn't form government. So to me, I think that I think that I think this was a very tactical move. Um, I think they enjoyed every moment in the bad press because ultimately what that did was it has been desensitizing us for the past year. So it almost doesn't matter what comes up between now and and the election call. We've probably already gone through it. I mean, honestly, the only way that, that a lot of people are not going to vote for Jason Kenney is if he's in jail and no longer on the ballot. Like, I honestly don't see... Because it, it, it was. It was a fantastic tactical move to desensitize because yeah those because that faction still exists within the ucp i think it's a lot stronger i think it has more power in the ucp than it did in the wild rose and maybe it's just because the ucp very likely at this moment will form government but but i honestly think that uh 
that it was a tactical move. Week by week, just a little bit here and a little bit there. And it's to the point that, meh. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm definitely inclined to agree with that. It it seems like things that would be a lot bigger deal in previous election campaigns are just kind of getting brushed to the side. And then just the volume of the controversies. You just... um, It's overwhelming. Yeah, it's overwhelming and you miss stuff. And uh, you just... Isn't that a sad thought? There's stuff that we're actually missing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So um, an interesting topic or note uh, related to that. So Jason Kenney's had a couple of announcements recently to cancel the planned Alberta Health Services Super Lab that would be built in Edmonton. Mm -hmm. And also to cancel the laundry contract or uh, sorry, the planned laundry facility that the NDP had proposed to build. Mm-hmm. And so quite a few people are saying that this shows how he wants a two-tier healthcare system and he doesn't value public services. Where do you, where do you land on that? <laughs> I think they're right. <laughs> he did, well... The two-tiered health thing, um, one of his candidates out in uh, Banff Kananaskis actually had a, there's there's audio of her saying that we should have two-tiered health care, and I'm paraphrasing, but pretty close, uh, so that those who work hard for their money can pay for it if they want. And, you know, it, I, I guess that makes sense. You know, I I honestly don't even know a lot of fiscal conservatives, free market conservatives who are sitting there saying, I hope that my taxes go down because what I'd really like to do is spend more money if I need a doctor. Right. I I I don't see how that resonates with with people. I get it with the I don't have to stand in line, but you don't now. Right. If you can if you can go to Quebec, you can go to the States, you can go to Mexico. There are a number of different options for people who have the capability to pay for it to get, you know, to get this stuff quickly. Is it available fast enough in Alberta? Some people say no. And, you know, I'm it's it's kind of like the it's kind of like the private school thing. Right. Does that siphon money out of the public system? Um, People say, well, we want better education. Therefore, that's what the private schools really the space that they take but then there's public school advocates that say why can't public schools offer this i mean if there's if there's that much of a need for it and again you know and public schools everywhere so but they're not the same across alberta so you know it it i don't know it i don't want to see a two-tiered healthcare system because I Do you think, think that, that washing people's sheets, though, is that slippery of <laughs> a slope? Does that need to be? Well, and no. Because one I... of the biggest challenges we face in Alberta is that, like, the current Alberta healthcare budget is $22.1 billion, and that's approaching 50% of our overall budget. And is that sustainable? I don't. It's not sustainable. It hasn't been sustainable for a long time. We don't pay enough for it to be that high. Um, and laundry services, I mean, one of the things that had come up at the time, weren't they looking to outsource it to a Saskatchewan company? 
Yeah, there was a contract <laughs> uh, that had been set up, and I believe it was done under the HS management. And yeah. I believe it was done free of involvement from a political party. Okay. But um, historically, it has been managed by Alberta Health mm -hmm. uh, Services. But the facility that they were doing it out of was kind of in disrepair. And may quotes, um, not exactly, but quotes were about $200 million to rebuild the facility right. and replace the, the infrastructure in it. And so by contracting it out to a private provider, they took that cost off the books and were able to theoretically get the sheets washed and linens washed for a cheaper price and so um this is one area that i'm a little bit more conservative on actually um and i just i think that both for diagnostic services and for something like laundry facilities and laundry provision we know that we have to bend the cost of healthcare, mm -hmm. or we have to get society in a global sense alberta to commit to paying their fair share for healthcare. And one of the things that I think is a big misconception is that healthcare is free in Alberta or free in Canada. <laughs> right. and it's not actually free because somebody has to pay for it. But in Alberta in particular, for so long, we haven't paid for it. Because mm -hmm. um, we, we just had so much money. It's so much money. <laughs> and so we, you know, for a long period of time, my entire adult life, we've had low taxes, high services, and uh, you just can't have that. Um, and <laughs> it doesn't match. No, it doesn't. And uh, it was interesting. I was at a, a political forum uh, panel a few years ago, and Dr. Kneebone from the UFC School of Public Policy said that Alberta hasn't actually balanced a budget in over 50 years without using some resource revenues and so this myth of the fiscal conservative alberta is really <laughs> just that because we haven't balanced a budget in 50 years without having to take some money from places that realistically probably shouldn't be there um and that in the long term we know aren't sustainable and aren't going to be there so we have to either have a tough discussion about how we are going to save money or are we prepared to pay the full value of the service we're receiving. And so that's where I think you have to get a little bit innovative in terms of, you know, can we, can we outsource laundry and can we put oversight protocols that ensure that we still have effective infection control? Mm -hmm. Can we do diagnostics and get better return on investment without compromising patient safety and the accuracy and quality of the tests. And uh, so I think that's where the NDP has been a little bit hamstrung by its own ideology. Mm. And it's an area where I see, I worry a little bit about government holding itself accountable too. <laughs> and I think there does need to be a separation between service providers and the accountability and standards piece. And for me, that's the role that government should play um, when it comes to non-core healthcare services. Okay. And that, and that does make sense to me. I know 
that he said, I mean, he, he said from the beginning, and I am not even going to suggest that anyone should believe the uh, public health guarantee, but when he did, oh, sorry, but one of the things that he said was it would still be funded with public dollars. To me, it's kind of one of those things where the bigger, the bigger agenda is to cut down the unions because that is one of our biggest expenses when it comes to public service and health service is the expense that we because they make more money and you know there's um for for years and years you had to you had to entice people to work in the public sector right and because the private sector made so much more money, I understand they had to they had to pay better. But I, I do I do get where they're coming from. Unions can end up looking like they're being unfair to the taxpayer or the company with you know some of the some of the things with pay. But at the same time, like I don't like the idea that 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 is an overall agenda is to attack the strength of the union. I mean, as soon as you open it up to being private, well, that's one of the that's one of the first things that happens, right? Is the lower wages. I was reading something the other yesterday about how it economic or sorry that it it doesn't make economic sense, but how wages stopped rising in 1973 to where they should have been. So some people really over the years have actually gotten poorer because their wages aren't rising at the same rate as everything else. There is, there's so much more than just, you know, and than just the one person. So yes, if the union, yes, if we can cut down on their wages, okay, but what happens as a whole, right? So should that be the primary consideration in policy decisions related to healthcare and budget? <laughs> Well, no, the primary consideration for healthcare should be on frontline services and uh, and actual services for people that are in the system. However, we also know that there's a problem getting people into the system. So the wait times, things like that. I, I hear from so many people that have said, once I'm in, everything is fantastic. I have no complaints, but it's getting in. It's getting past that wait time. Um, you know, there are there are just certain things where I look at and say, if it's really that much of an issue, then why don't we have more doctors? Why don't we have more lab tests, uh, more specialists? Like most people don't, I don't know. It's again, you know, that's a, that's a, a generalized versus personal. Some people wait and because they were waiting too long, they pass away. Yeah. Right. So you have those situations. No one wants that to happen. As a general rule, you know, I remember I had a numbness in my leg and I mentioned it to the doctor because it kind of kept showing up. Well, then it stopped showing up. But in the meantime, they had put me on a list. And so, I don't know, it was it was definitely like nine or ten months later. And they called me to come in and get this thing done. And I was like, for what? I had no idea why they were calling because the numbness went away. But anyways, um, I did go in for my appointment because I'm like, yeah, that was weird. And maybe I should check it out. I wasn't, I, I wasn't urgent, right? So did it affect me to wait that long? Absolutely not. Should I have gotten in sooner? 
I was okay. But again, could have turned out differently. Maybe it was, maybe it was serious. Who knows, right? So, you know, it's a, it's, it's kind of that thing where they try to put in the most, the most urgent people first. And yeah, sometimes, you know, my, my brother-in-law passed away like a week before his MRI. They would have found out that he had, um, it's called arrhythmic right ventricle disorder. And basically, because he was so active, it's actually what killed him. His heart was turning to mm. uh, fat from muscle oh. to fat. They got the rest, like his his three siblings, they got them in very fast because now they knew what they were looking for. Unfortunately, you know, David passed away before they knew. And he passed away while skiing because it was the physical activity that was actually taking its toll on him. But they didn't know. So oh. until, yeah. So like those things happen and we can say our system isn't working. Yeah, for me, I I look at something like laundry or I look at something like a diagnostic service. um, And say, why not? Frontline services are different from something like a blood test or laundry provision or food service provision. And if you can still ensure that we are upholding a high standard for infection control and accuracy of tests and deliver it in a cost-saving model, then that allows more of those resources to be deployed into the front line, into doctors, into equipment like an MRI machine that can hopefully address some of those wait times and can ensure that you do have better access. And so for me, it's really looking at defining what core services are and what it is that has to be delivered publicly and where we can find efficiencies and I'm not talking efficiencies in the terms of spending less money but I'm talking about getting a person onboarded into the system as fast as possible and making sure that they receive appropriate care as quickly as they can mm-hmm. yeah and I think it's you know every so I think everyone has said that AHS is a mammoth that is is going to be very 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 difficult to fix so yeah. it yeah that's a it, it that is a tough one and it's and yes i can see what you're saying with you know it does laundry ser- do laundry services have to be publicly delivered i don't think so um but then wasn't that one of the complaints at first was that the public facility wasn't returning things to the standard of sterility they needed to be was that the public facility or was that something else i remember reading it well they're currently using a public facility and i think that that was the justification for not going to a private provider but there's certainly other jurisdictions in canada that do use private laundry uh Mm -hmm. service providers so i think that there again that's where um alberta health alberta health which is the government organization, not the arm's length organization. They're responsible for standards of care. And in my view, that's something that they can do and should be doing um, to ensure that, again, you do meet those standards of care. Mm -hmm. And I guess I would say one more thing is that uh, not wanting to create a monopoly, but one of the things that I see as far as, you know, uh, testing facilities, things like that, you almost don't want to be dealing with 12 different testing facilities or 12 different testing companies. You almost, and and that could be one area where I might say that 
that this is something you you want to ensure that the tests are all being done the same way you want to ensure and the more people that you allow the more hands that you allow into that the more difficult it could be to ensure that um that's something that you see well on i don't watch them myself my mom does so they're always on uh, uh police stations in the u.s when they're doing a lot of forensic testing how often they have to send stuff out to so many different like they've got so many different choices and just seeing some of these things when they're like, oh, the lab did this. Oh, the lab lost it. You know, it's like, I want them all connected. <laughs> I want yeah. there to be a hallway. <laughs> I don't want that leaving the building. But again, little things that, you know, you want to ensure that we're maintaining a standard that that is really high. And in certain situations, I guess, um, it's not that I necessarily trust the public sector to do it. I just trust it to be standardized, right, among all of the different locations. So that's that would be that would be one of my concerns around yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. But laundry, yeah. Yeah. So on that front, uh, there was some news that came out uh, in the past day or so, and it looks like the NDP is actually going to be proposing some legislation for this spring sitting. And uh, Health Minister Sarah Hoffman has confirmed that a bill that may potentially be Bill 1 is going to be introduced to protect public health care ahead of the election. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think there's an element of trying to establish a political wedge between the NDP and the UCP who've been making some of these announcements. But there's also been rumblings from Joe CC now that a budget will also be introduced. And uh, so I just found that a little bit interesting that perhaps there are some signs that the election is going to be held a little bit later rather than sooner with them talking about some specifics about potential legislation to follow. Well, and that wouldn't be, did the legislature sit in 2015? Very briefly. Right. Uh, So that's, it's not abnormal. Yeah. Yes. Yes, we yeah. all remember the budget. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so so it's not abnormal to sit. And as much as Kenny's been saying, it's February the 1st, you can call the election, do it. Uh, it. It is still up to the government and they can wait until the 1st of May, which gives them plenty of time, honestly, to to sit for a session. Yeah, well, it sounds so. like uh, either way, we're going to be kept on the edge of our seats for developments <laughs> over the course of the next couple of weeks. Of course, right? It wouldn't be Alberta politics if it wasn't keeping us on the edge of our seats. Yeah. All right. So I think that wraps up everything we want to talk about today. On our next <laughs> podcast, we're going to take a look at federal politics. It's been a fairly interesting couple of weeks. We're going to take a quick dive into Jody Wilson-Raybould and her testimony against her still current Liberal Party and (laughs) former boss Prime Minister Trudeau. Um, And we're going to take a look at some of the testimony from Gerald Butts, the sudden re-emergence of Sheila Copps on social media, and uh, talk about some of the Justice Committee goings on as well. And discuss whether the political strategy that's been employed to manage this crisis has been effective. (laughs) So that's it for us for today. Thanks for joining us for our first podcast. Deirdre, where can people find you online? They can find me at Mitchell underscore AB. And you can find me on social media at RKS Alberta. 
Thanks for joining us and we look forward to seeing you next time.